welcome back to the next community podcast. I am Angelo Luciani along with Laura Whalen. Hi there. And John Troyer, who could not be with us today, but the show must go on. On today's show, we have Stephen Poitras, a solutions architect and technology evangelist at Nutanix. He blogs at stephenpoitras.com, where he maintains the Nutanix Bible, a technical resource for folks looking to deep dives into the technology. Before we get into the interview, we'd like to discuss some news and current events. This past week, I've been um, came across an article on readwrite.com called OpenStack is huge in the open source cloud, but maybe not huge enough. And it's full of stats, and it was really interesting to dig into the stats, but uh, I'd like to just point out a few of the interesting stats that I found. There was a uh, Xenos survey done, and according to the survey, 69% of the roughly 400 respondents are using a cloud, and 43% of these respondents are using an open source cloud, either uh, you know an open stack or a cloud stack, etc. So that was interesting to see. The article also uh, mentions AWS and comparing OpenStack in size to AWS, you know, in terms of revenue. I found that particular stat to be interesting. And among these uh, open source competitors, and I think it's no surprise, but OpenStack stands out with a 69% share, which is quite large. That's amazing, actually. Yeah. And one of the other um, interesting items in the Xenos survey was the top three benefits expected from open source cloud deployments. Folks were anticipating lower cost of ownership, agility, and better uptime in general. So it's interesting. Um, I think we all struggle with these particular metrics, and I think they'll be with us for a while. It's an interesting read. Lots of uh, data in there. You can check it out in our show notes. Sounds good. I wanted to jump in and uh, talk about WebScale Wish for a little while. Is that all right? Yeah. All right, so I'd like to talk about WebScale Wish for a couple of minutes. This was a project that Nutanix launched back in October, and it's been pretty amazing. They're planning to gift more than $500,000 in WebScale technologies to nonprofit organizations. And basically, they were looking for the community to nominate different nonprofits across the world. They did get around 350 or more nominations by members of the community. And we had five community judges, Stu Miniman, Doug Brown, Michael Webster, Julian Wood, and Steve Greenberg, who um, followed this really calculated process to determine three finalists. And last week, Nutanix announced that the winner is Class Limited. They're based in the U.S. and they get a fully supported, fully implemented web scale data center makeover. So that's going to happen in 2015. I believe that we'll be documenting that process. So it's going to be really exciting. The other, the two finalists actually are Berry Street in Australia and the Air Ambulance Service in the UK. Each one of those is getting a pretty sweet deal as well. Um, they're getting uh, equipment, you know, web scale equipment and services as well. So they can update their data centers to web scale in addition. So that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, that's great. And one of the really exciting things here is we get to help them with their data center. And then that lets the folks that work in these great organizations focus on helping people. 
When we complete our web scale upgrade in these nonprofits, these folks will have more time to spend helping people. And that's, that's great. And it's wonderful that the entire community out here, out, out there was able to participate in nominating nonprofits as well as voting for particular nonprofits. So we're very thankful to everyone that participated. And we hope you continue to, as Laura mentioned, watch for further updates as we document the the progression with these um, with these nonprofits as we help them. So it's it's wonderful that your one your one nomination, your one vote is able to help many many lives. So we're very grateful and thankful for uh, for your support. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. I think I think more companies should be doing this. You know, it's all about the community and giving back. I'm really happy to be able to have participated in this, to be able to give back to a charity like this that's giving to us every day. So that's pretty yeah, cool. That's great. Thanks. Yeah, one last uh, news item uh, came across on Recode.net, a blog post called Microsoft Plans to Talk More About Windows 10 at January 21st, 2015 event, which, uh, boy, 2015 is just right around the corner. Uh, it's incredible. We're, we're already here, but it's going to be great to see Windows 10 and what Microsoft has planned for it. Um, just a couple items from the post. Microsoft plans to reveal more of the consumer features of its Windows 10 operating system. I believe there's actually a Windows technical preview folks can um, participate in. So if you want to be a early adopter or take a quick peek at it, you can do that. As well as the article mentions Windows 10, Microsoft is aiming to unify its mobile and desktop operating systems. So that's going to be interesting to see sort of that melding of operating systems and platforms. Oh, yeah. And by the way, I heard the old Windows start menu and desktop are back. So that's an amazing thing to me because I actually helped a friend get her laptop going with the last version of Windows and I was like, where the heck is it? And it was bothering me, and I'm so glad it's coming back. So that's a great thing. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people are excited about that. So that's going to be good to see. So those are the three uh, news items. So with that, let's get into our feature interview with our roving reporter, Dwayne Lesnar. Take it away, Dwayne. Hi there. I'd like to welcome Stephen Poitras to the Next Community Podcast, a household name within the Nutanix uh, community. Uh, Stephen, why don't you just... Uh, quickly introduce yourself and tell us what you've been up to lately. Cool. Hey, guys. Well, yeah. First, thanks for having me on. Uh, as Dwayne mentioned, my name is Stephen Poitras. I'm a principal solutions architect here at Nutanix and also do a lot of work with the uh, Nutanix Bible. So I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, I think uh, you've definitely been a long-tenured uh, Newtonint or whatever the going phrase is for Nutanix folks these days. Tell me uh, a little bit how uh, you ended up at Nutanix and kind of what was the journey to, to get there. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. So uh, prior to joining Nutanix, I actually worked at a consulting firm called Accenture in their technology labs, which is essentially their research and development group. During that, obviously, I found infrastructure to be extremely interesting and kind of my niche, so to say. Uh, so as part of that, I became lead architect for an offering which we called the on-premise private cloud. And essentially for that, what we did is we took a lot of converged platforms like VBlocks, actually worked on the first FlexPod, uh, HPC SMs, and used that as part of a, a larger uh, on-premise private cloud solution. So obviously it was very familiar with the converged infrastructure space or what people thought was the converged infrastructure space then. And actually, one of my buddies, uh, Lucas Lindell, who was also at Nutanix, 
actually had reached out to me and wanted me to come by. And, you know, I basically came in and uh, got a chance to talk with the engineering team, got a chance to talk with Daraj and Mohit and all the guys. First, I'll, I'll admit I was definitely a, a misbeliever. You know, I thought there's no way you could actually get, you know, centralized storage using DAS devices and create a distributed system on top of that. But after seeing with it, uh, seeing it in action, you know, I quickly became a believer. And then, you know, one of the other funny things is, you know, I was like, well, this is very early on in Nutanix days. I was like, well, you know, who knows if things will actually work out? And luckily they have. But at that time, you know, there's a lot of risk. You know, after talking to all the engineering team and even specifically Daraj and just seeing that here this guy is extremely visionary, extremely well-spoken, but also we were talking about Zookeeper and Quorums. So I was like, no matter what happens uh, in terms of the outcome of the company, I'll learn a ton about the crew and the industry and technology. So, you know, it's definitely a sure bet. And obviously here we are today, so it's uh, worked out very well. I guess uh, if it if it didn't work out, you probably you wouldn't have been out anything as far as the the technology you left. Not not in a negative way, just that it's going to be there. You, you said one interesting thing that I thought was you've always had a an interest in infrastructure, and you're talking cloud. And someone else had brought this up before, where never underestimate someone's need to touch gear. And so I, I don't know if that exactly plays into private cloud versus public cloud on, for, for some people's minds, but you're definitely in a building uh, solution. You're kind of at the core of Nutanix. Uh, I think when I first joined the company, you were you actually sat right in between engineering and support. What's kind of the, the day in the life for you then and um, what, what's changed or is it pretty much the, the same? You know, early on, we were actually all in one room. So, um, you know, we had engineering. I actually sat right next to David Sangster, who's now our VP of, uh, of operations and support. And, you know, he was literally my desk buddy right next to me. And we essentially had what we called the circle of trust, which was a lot of the SREs or support org. But it was really kind of in the heart of engineering. And that was really what we focused on early on in the, uh, in the company. Obviously, back then, you know, we were 40-something-odd people, so we all sat in a single room. And nowadays, obviously, we've experienced some uber growth, so unfortunately, don't get to sit all in uh, in one floor all together. It's been an awesome journey. I mean, back then, it's the same, I would say it's kind of the same attitude that we have today. I mean, obviously, what we're trying to do is not just evolve the industry, but really do something extremely revolutionary. And obviously, it takes a lot of uh, drive and passion. Uh, back then, we would work 11-hour, 12-hour days. I didn't leave before 9 o'clock uh, very frequently. But, you know, that same drive, that same passion, and, you know, the same late nights still exist today. Uh, there are many times where I see myself, you know, hopping on conference calls very early in the morning or staying up late just to get something coded. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. And, yeah, the, the nice thing is, is we actually have a lot more space. We can actually have a game room uh, nowadays. <laughs> yeah. I'm always at awe in the Valley about people's, the game rooms, but also the snack rooms. I think, oh, yeah. I think if you live in the Valley, I'm pretty sure you might only have to buy like one meal a day on your own dime. Yeah, that's uh, good and bad. Because <laughs> I think when I, when I first joined, I was probably about 15 pounds lighter than I am today. So pros and cons. <laughs> Steven, this is John. You talked a little about working with private cloud technologies. Yep. 
I'm curious how you feel like the traditional way of constructing a private cloud a few years ago was progressing. Uh, it seemed like at some level the public cloud guys were always yelling that the private cloud guys certainly didn't have enough scale uh, and had too many – there were too many fiddly bits and too much administration on the data center side to make the OPEX for a cloud work out that, of course, they had solved on the public cloud side at their scale. I'm kind of curious how you felt uh, working in the private cloud environment a few years back uh, and, and maybe connected to Nutanix as well. Yeah, well, I mean, if I think about it, you know, back in the day, some of the solutions that we were uh, developing, one of the key things is they're extremely complex. You know, if you think about even with a, like a vBlock or a FlexPod, you have a lot of moving pieces with that. You have to worry about your volumes, your rate groups, your lunge, your masking, your zoning, just on the storage side. And then you have to worry about your data store to ESXi host mapping and then the VM ratios to data store. And, I mean, so it just gets extremely complex. And one of the ways that, you know, we tried to solve it back in the day was these extensive utilization of automation and orchestration technologies. So, you know, we had some solutions using BMC CLM. Uh, we had some with VMware's vCake and vCorg. But, you know, the thing is, is all these are extremely, extremely difficult to configure and, and really operationalize. So... A lot of times, at the end of the day, what you got was you know something that was partly automated, still had a lot of manual steps, and you know that would cost you millions of dollars up front to procure the hardware for it, but then also millions of dollars on the consulting side to get everything configured and integrated. Um, so realistically, I mean, if you look at a lot of the businesses, I mean, it, it was not going to be cheaper than public cloud. It was really just the fact that they wanted to have some agility internally so they can do like a, a pseudo private cloud. And, you know, a lot of it just came down to the fact that, you know, it was really just evolving the traditional three-tier architecture, abstracting it with a centralized management monitoring layer, and then throwing some automation and orchestration to do all the provisioning and configuration management. And that, that was what I was used to. And on the consulting side, we like that because that brings us money. But from a business perspective, it's not really uh, something that's easily implementable. And then also, it's not something that's easily scalable. And if you look at then versus today, you know, if I were to do the same job that I was doing, you know, three plus years ago back then with a product like Nutanix, my job would be extremely simple because, you know, I don't need to worry about volumes, LUNs, zoning, data store to VM ratios, any of that stuff. And then also the fact that, you know, if I do need to interface with the Nutanix platform, I can do that via a simple REST-based API. I don't need to worry about SOAP calls or anything like that. And so realistically, it just makes the stack much more flat. Um, so you just have a storefront portal on top of it. You know, your orchestration and provisioning is very, very lightweight uh, just for initial deployment and scale out. And, yeah, I mean, it just makes things much simpler and uh and uh, actually cost-effective, realistically. So, It kind of brings up the point, and I guess maybe three or four years ago, maybe you'd be classified as the do-it-yourselfer. What changed in your world as far as the automation side? You're still heavily involved in scripting and PowerShell. Are you saving time on the setup, or where is the, the time kind of being recouped? So obviously, yeah, I, I do do a lot on the scripting side still. But, you know, these are really higher level or higher order uh, workflows or activities. So back in the day, we'd have to create workflows, orchestration workflows for provisioning a new LUN. 
And then as part of that one provisioning process, you had to ensure that the masking was correctly set up. You had to check the WWPNs, the WNNs, and then configure zoning on the fabric. So you had to do all these lower-level things. And, you know, if you look at what I have to do today, I don't have to do any of that, right? With the Nutanix platform, whether it's ESX, Hyper-V, or KVM, I really don't have to worry. I can have one large data store if I want to or one per tenant if I wanted some sort of logical separation. And then from there, I don't. that's all I do. I just start provisioning virtual machines. So rather than worrying about all those low-level workflows and abstracts, I can basically come up a few levels and worry about doing that. And so obviously that's what I do uh, for a lot of my scripting. And then the other nice thing is just from a, a scripting standpoint, all the interfaces are already there. So if I want to use uh, the REST API, boom, we have that. If I want to write something in PowerShell or Python, I can do that very easily. That's where it's much simpler than having to learn a whole new orchestration platform and then hook into all these little archaic things. Like, you know, if you wanted to create a new zone on a, on a fabric sand, that's not the most straightforward thing to do. It's much easier today, that's so to say. When we talk about cloud, too, it kind of makes me think about how typically where people went off and specialized, even in prior to virtualization, but even even now trying to optimize for the very last possible IOP. But I think like cloud, a lot of it is generalizing for the whole workload. You don't really call out any one workload because you're, you're going to affect the rest. And at least on the internal side of the house, I would call you as the, the no-bit fiddler, if that makes any sense at all. The guy that kind of points out and says, hey, don't don't do advanced settings. Maybe kind of share with the rest of the, the world your philosophy on keeping it simple. If you think about it, the more complex you design and architect something, the more difficult it is going to be to manage and operate it. And for me, obviously, I'll say in, in certain instances I can be, I, I wouldn't necessarily say lazy is the best term, but there's certain things that I don't want to deal with, Right. And if you think about IT as well, I mean, they don't want to have to worry about LUNs or zoning or anything like that because at the end of the day, they care about virtual machines to some extent, but more importantly, the services and applications that are running on those VMs. They don't necessarily need to care about a LUN. I mean, I don't know anyone that actually uh, was very heartfelt about a LUN. And, you know, kind of same thing with the Nutanix side. I mean, I operate, you know, my environments, my clusters on a, on a day-to-day basis, and I want to keep them as simple as possible. That's what I do. You know, that's why I like the whole kind of construct where you can have a single data store and run all your virtual machines off that without having to worry about VM to LUN ratios or anything like that. And then also ensuring that the system is really doing all the self-tuning and really abstracting all that difficulty and complexity for you. One of the things for me is I want our customers uh, and end users to really have, you know, the best experience that they can but then really focus on the core of their operation, which isn't managing storage or LUNs or zoning or anything like that. I want them to be able to focus on value-add things to the business, not the traditional day-to-day operation stuff. Obviously, we are very complex from a product perspective, but we abstract that all for you. I mean, it's our job to make things simpler for the end user and to ensure that we continue to do that. That's where I file a ton of JIRA tickets as well uh, to ensure that we you know, definitely keep evolving the product and keep making things as simple as possible. People that wouldn't know, potentially, Nutanix has a lot of advanced settings called G-Flags. As comparative, maybe when you first started at Nutanix versus now, how many of those get set for a normal customer or it's pretty much just set and forget? 
back in the day, I definitely uh, will say I'm guilty. I did a lot of GFAG manipulation, specifically for customers. But that's the thing. Like when I talked about, you know, finding a lot of these Jira tickets, the whole kind of concept back in the day was, you know, obviously we don't want to expose these, but then we need to be able to, you know, make these dynamic and abstract them away from the customer. So nowadays, I don't set any G flags on my cluster actually, just because, you know, we built in that dynamic logic where it doesn't require advanced tuning. Are there certain instances where people might need it? I would say potentially, but that's the one to two percent. Other than that, I mean, it's really just, you know, you have the default environment, default variables, and you just run with it. And I use those variables for everything from VDI to Splunk to Big Data to Azure Pack. And I don't tweak a thing with the platform. That's it. That's awesome. It's nice knowing if you're switching from architecture to architecture, you don't really have to change a lot to get there. Yeah, absolutely. John got us kicked off on talking about cloud, doing lots of scripting. I think a lot of your activities at some point end up into the the Nutanix Bible, which is off your own blog. I know I send a lot of people there. Were you always blogging a lot before the Nutanix Bible? What kind of got that idea kicked off and and ran with? I'll be honest with you. like I didn't blog at all before. Um, (laughs) I think I owned a domain name, but I don't think there was actually anything on the domain. Back in the day, I always do uh, the product deep dive for all of our new joiners. And back in the day, it used to be just purely whiteboard. So, you know, I'd get up there and whiteboard everything. And I had to do this every single time. I forget if it was uh, Raymond Epping or, or Boz, but basically they asked, they're like, hey, you know, is there this information somewhere, you know, on a, on a wiki or a portal or anything like that? We had some stuff initially within engineering. We had a, an engineering wiki, but with a constantly evolving product, you know, it's tough for those things to continue to be kept up to date. You know, my answer back to the guys was, well, there is some stuff. It's a little out of date, but realistically, we do need something like this. I forget exactly how it came about, but one of the times I was like, walking down the hall, I saw a garage, and I was like, hey, you know, it would be possible for me to, you know, write some of the stuff up about how we, how we do things. And he's like, no, to be honest with you, I think that's a great idea. And that was kind of the initial birth of what now is the Nutanix Bible. And obviously it was very small in the beginning, and it's obviously evolved over time, but it was completely just chance that it actually came about. Um, Yeah, it's completely random. What I love about the Nutanix Bible are two things. One, it shows a, a great deal of openness on Nutanix's part. I've heard from a lot of folks, non Nutanix folks, who've said that, that the Bible has really helped them either in a evaluation setting or even after they purchase the product, right? There's just a lot of detail about the way things actually work. And one of the value adds of Nutanix is, as you talked about, there's a lot of uh, complex things going on under the hood that make the outside very simple. And you don't have to get in there and mess with your carburetor, but it is good to know what all the different parts of the engine do. <laughs> sure, that's number one. But number two, actually, is kind of a meta thing. A blogging is a form, but it's also kind of an attitude and a, a process. And not every blog has to look like a blog. You know, you don't have to have these articles that are 300 words in a reverse chronological format. You came up with a solution. It's just a couple of HTML pages. I hope you have it under change control or time stamping or something because it does evolve. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't have to look like a blog to be a useful community-generated resource. So kudos for that. I think that's genius. Cool. Cool. Thank you. 
yeah, I mean, it, it's fun. And, you know, it's actually just more of a passion for me. I mean, in seeing the actual utilization of it and the different countries that people are coming from, I mean, that's honestly all the motivation I need to keep it going. I mean, it's whenever I check the, uh, the WordPress stats and see it, I just get blown away and awestruck. So, I mean, it's, it's a fun thing that's I'm very passionate about. And, uh, yeah, we'll definitely continue to evolve it because there's a lot of stuff I still need to get in there. Stephen, you have a, a number of videos on the um, in the Nutanix Bible as well. How are those? Um, how are folks receptive to those? Yeah, so we initially wanted to do this a, a while back, but haven't gotten to it till, until now. But yeah, the adoption for that has been very good so far. Um, sometimes people, you know, they have their preferences in terms of how they want to learn about a technology, whether it's whiteboard or read some collateral or watch a whiteboard session or you know discuss with something about it. Yeah, I mean, the uptick for those has been very well. We'll continue to get those. I mean, I think right now we have about 12 that have been produced. So next week we're actually going to start recording some more. And my kind of whole goal is to, for every section within the Nutanix Bible or every uh, how it works or anything like that, make sure we actually have a, a video to go along with the section just to make sure that we adjust for people's preferences. I think the the videos are a nice nice touch because I think just some people consume in different ways. Like I think myself, I like obviously like podcasts. I like videos. You know, you spend all day looking at a screen. It's kind of it's just a lot easier. I think uh, for myself anyway to consume it. We touched on being open. Every other day in the land of Twitter, you hear about FUD and kind of drives me crazy. But is it still internally, or every is everyone perceptive about having that kind of deep? engineering technical content there or do you run into that at all first i'll say like i i just can't even stand fud or anything like that i mean from my perspective i think the whole thing is you know you have to understand your technology and if you have to resort to fud slinging or anything like that it just shows that you're not confident in your technology so i i can't stand any of the fud slinging or anything like that and obviously you know we do put a lot out on the table and open ourselves up but i think one of the things is we obviously want to be that leader. And obviously WebScale and HyperConverge or whatever buzzword people want to use nowadays, it is a very new approach to infrastructure. It's completely different than the traditional three, three-tier architecture, which people are used to. We want to make people comfortable with that. And so that's where we really want to be the, the leader in that space. Not just today, but tomorrow. We want to drive that thought leadership. I get a lot of support from the guys internally. I mean, they, they love it. I mean, the engineers even read it uh, as part of their onboarding. I haven't gotten any pushback in terms of openness or anything like that. Everyone has actually been extremely supportive just because we want to be that thought leader and we want to be that visionary. And then also the fact that we literally have the best engineers so we can afford to put a little extra hat on the table just because it would take the top percentile of a percentile of engineers to actually go do what we've done so and, and that's just a kudos to our engineering talent i mean i talk to these guys and i don't sometimes i don't even understand half of what they're saying and so that, that's why we can really put that stuff out there is there any information in the bible that somebody was surprised that uh, you had released yeah no i don't think so actually if anything, people just want me to put more and more in there. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously there has to be a cutoff because we want to make it digestible. I think good or bad, at least if you're a customer, you can plan for whatever it may be. In that sense, even if there was like a shortcoming with a version, I think it's still good to have it out there and know about it before it happens, so to speak. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, if I, if I was in a customer's shoes, 
and someone brought me this black box and said, you know, hey, it'll just work. I'd be a little skeptical about that. And so, you know, obviously all, all the stuff actually in the Nutanix Bible realistically is all about the under the covers, the how it works stuff. There is some stuff in terms of how you configure and how you script towards it. But it's really how under the covers it actually works. And that's really where rather than saying here's a black box, go, it'll just work, you know, we say here's our appliance. If you want to know how it works underneath the covers, here's how it actually does work just to make you comfortable with it. So, yeah, I would say absolutely. Stephen, have you given any thought of uh, delivering the Bible in different formats, maybe like an iOS app or Android app or anything like that? Just curious. Uh, first answer is absolutely yes. Uh, this has actually been on a to-do list for a while. I just need to get around to it. we got to figure out what the best kind of medium for that is. You know, it's a dynamic resource so obviously like um, you know hard copy or anything like that doesn't make a lot of sense but yeah something like a, an app or an ebook or something like that we could we could absolutely uh, and, and do definitely want to push out something like that this opens up the next question totally steve what are you doing with a windows mobile phone <laughs> <laughs> oh i didn't i didn't expect this question um <laughs> Well, let's just say, so I'm from the Northwest, uh, so, um, you know, I definitely have, uh, you know, ties into, ties into Microsoft and, uh, and uh, the Redmond area, but, you know, simplicity is, simplicity is key, right? You know, my Windows phone, back in the day, obviously, didn't have a lot of apps for it, but it was just simple. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I just I know. actually enjoy it. <laughs> I know that phone works 24-7, so whatever, whatever you need it for, it seems to be doing the trick. I had to laugh a bit when when Angelo <laughs> mentioned uh, iOS apps, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, just for uh, for the public, I mean, we'll probably start with the iOS and Android stuff, but then maybe maybe Windows might be a, a close third. So yeah. <laughs> what are you kind of up to lately? I think I think you've been working on some KVM scripting for some customers. What's your next big project that the community can hear about? I can talk about part of it, can't talk about part of it, but um, one of the things I've been doing recently is a lot with uh, a lot with KVM and then uh, some secret projects we have uh, uh, going on as well. So as part of that, I've been doing a lot of uh, testing with uh, Splunk on KVM, which I think is actually going to be an extremely good solution because from a, a licensing perspective, obviously there's a lot of benefits there. And then been doing that Splunk testing uh, and benchmarking using uh, Bonnie Plus Plus. So a lot of that with KVM, and then also on the uh, scripting side, been doing a lot of uh, a lot of scripting, uh, both on the KVM front. But then also uh, one of the things that I'm working on right now that actually came for a customer is they wanted a way to be able to automate an ordered restoration of protection domains or migration of protection domains, and so developed that a month or two back. And one of the things that I've been doing, and hopefully will I'll probably probably try to finish it tomorrow, is basically creating a script that will take a recovery plan, which is essentially a set of a restoration order, a recovery order of protection domains, a network mapping. So, for example, when you fail over a protection domain or migrate a protection domain to a remote site, or even restore that or clone it within the existing site you actually have a network mapping there. So the data center networks at site A are going to be different than at site B, so ensuring that we reconfigure those. And, you know, so I won't go too, too deep into it, but essentially it's kind of like a pseudo SRM type tool all built on top of the, and utilizing the Nutanix PowerShell commandlets. 
Wow, that'll be impressive. I know uh, you kind of really don't ever think about that stuff until you're kind of either something's melting or the power goes out. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, you know, I think one of the things that I mentioned too is like continually iterating and optimizing the product. This right now today is just me developing this, but this is I already have a Jira files for this, so it'll actually be in the product as as a whole. Uh, not something where you need to run some script created by me. So that's one of the nice things is we really want to keep it as simple as possible. Stephen, I'm kind of curious what you're thinking about KVM these days. Uh, I'm from a VMware background, so the whole world revolved around vSphere for me for a long time. But as I've been talking with other companies, I'm sensing a lot of activity on the KVM front. And as I talked with the Red Hat folks, et cetera, we're coming to a place where it might not be as scary. The assumption being, of course, there that KVM is a little scary and foreign for people that uh, may not have encountered it before. I would say absolutely. I mean, me, myself, um, I actually went through growing pains getting used to KVM. I mean, it is something that, you know, is is different. You know, obviously working with, uh, having worked with uh, VMware and ESX and ESXi all the time, you know, something that people are just comfortable with and used to. So, I mean, it was definitely a big shift in terms of getting used to it. But I think one of the things that we're definitely seeing today is really kind of a commoditization of the hypervisor itself. Hyper-V, with their Hyper-V V3, they introduced a lot of really great features. KVM's coming into the play now. And, you know, I think one of the nice things with KVM is the fact that it's literally free. If I look at some of the old uh, POs and all that that I had to do in the past for licensing or, or budget estimates for licensing on the hypervisor side, it, it can actually get extremely expensive. So obviously there's there's cost savings to that, but then also the fact that we're kind of seeing this shift of commoditization of the hypervisor. So do I think KVM is going to take over the world? Absolutely not. But do I think it'll definitely have a big role in certain uh, use cases and workloads? I would say absolutely. It seems like it's performant and um, people now are building management around it and tools around the core hypervisor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the performance is is spot on. I've had labs in ESXi, Hyper-V, and KVM. The performance part is not an issue. And I think that last frontier, one of the key frontiers to really enabling that is just like you mentioned, uh, the management interfaces and consoles to really kind of abstract that CLI-based administration and make it into something that, one, either is all automated, or two, if they need to interface with it, that is uh, done by a UI the holy grail. So um, with that, uh, Steve, uh, why don't you tell us where we can find you online and uh, where to grab the updated bits for the Bible? For the Nutanix Bible, I actually got uh, some new domain names, so you can just actually go to NutanixBible.com or the NutanixBible.com on Twitter as well. It's just at uh, Stephen Poitras. Feel free to reach out, and that's one of the things, too, also for the community is Obviously, we're all here to help, so if you have any questions, comments, feedback, or actually want to see things in the, in the Bible or want some whiteboard videos or you know, have even you know, scripting questions or KVM questions, I would definitely say reach out. We're all here to help, and even if they're detailed uh, engineering questions and if I don't know the correct answer, I'll definitely, uh, definitely go find the answer for you. We're all in the community together, so um, you know, the more that I can help out and the more that we can help, I mean, the better. So. Or if you have a Windows mobile phone. <laughs> but I do have some uh, tips if people have Windows mobile phones as well. So, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thanks again, and uh, I look forward to seeing the updates hit the Bible. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. yeah, pleasure, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. 
Thanks for listening to the next community podcast. Don't forget to follow Nutanix on Twitter for the latest news and announcements. If you're interested in participating on the podcast or have a topic idea, email community at Nutanix.com. I'm Angelo Luciani. And I'm Laura Whalen. We look forward to chatting with you again next week.